0: This is a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My first guest for the morning has just joined me in the studio. Hoda Afshar is a photographer who, amongst other things, uh, won the uh, National Photographic Portrait Prize in 2015. She also lectures in photography and joins us to talk about an exhibition on at Mars Gallery in Windsor called Behold. Hoda, welcome to R. Hi,
1: thank you. Thanks for having me here. Very today.
0: great pleasure. So th- as soon as I saw the images for this this exhibition, in fact, even before I saw the images, the idea of the exhibition intrigued me. You've documented uh, the the lives of gay men in, um, you haven't named the the city or the country, but uh, I'm presuming it's somewhere where uh, gay life uh, is perhaps tolerated but largely sidelined or shunned and to be publicly gay would be dangerous for the men involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, the series is um, 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 a photographic work that I made um, early 2016 in collaboration with this group of young homosexual men that I got to know uh, a few years back and we became quite close and they told me about this secret bathhouse that um, doesn't exist anymore actually uh, but uh, back then they were telling me that it's been around for quite a long time and the only place that they can go to and openly explore their sexuality in there and... They invited me to photograph them in there, which I, at first, I thought it's quite impossible, but um, the owners also kind of like embraced the idea quite. Openly, So I went in there and um, made these pictures with them to sort of like exactly as you said, this idea of like, um, you know, as social being, we all um, demand recognition. And when our being and our um, sort of freedom is taken away from us and made invisible, it's a kind of a desire to put it on display and share it with others.
0: So in some ways, this series of shall we call it a photographic essay, perhaps it's it's an attempt by you to, to not just give them uh, public recognition but to celebrate on their behalf their their uh, rare opportunity for intimacy.
1: Uh, exactly. And there are different sort of like um, aspects to the work because one is that um, it's portraying these men um, sort of exactly, as you said, celebrating their bodies and the intimacy between their bodies. And the other aspect is to sort of like point out a universal issue. That's one of the reasons that I decided to not disclose the location of the work because I see it more as um as a universal issue than like uh specific to um uh, ge- different geographical places because exactly as you we all witnessed last year we were here still voting yes or no to sort of like give um homosexual um men and women the same right as other people to get married or not and even like here in different places when i showed the work there were a lot of extreme reactions to the fact that like these images are on display for public to see because it's still seeing men um interacting quite intimately. We know it, but we don't want to see it. And when it's on display, it's quite confronting for people.
0: Now, the images aren't sexually explicit by any means. The the men are part, still partially clothed, but the, the intimacy comes through touch, for example, or through, there's kind of a, a beautiful uh, image of just a, a group of four men embracing one another. Uh, and yeah. so there's a, and one of them, I love the way his arm is braced against a wall while his other yeah. uh, arm is is cupping somebody quite tenderly against him there's a real feeling of kind of support and strength and mutual support that you've captured in that particular photograph
1: yeah um thanks uh it's actually one of the things that I really wanted to maintain in the work was this sense of um ambiguity like I didn't want it to be overtly sexualized first of all because I was a woman walking into a maid bathhouse there was this rule that the owner called me sister he said when sister's in here no one's um gonna get fully naked which um i felt comfortable with that <laughs> and then also um uh, the other thing is that um to me like um, specifically when you think about, for example, in the Western context, um, it's the male intimacy and physical interaction between male uh, bodies is viewed through a very narrow sexualized lens. But when you place these images in a, uh, for example, Middle Eastern context, um, a lot of these images might not sort of like reflect anything sexualized to to the viewer because... um, because the physical interaction between men is quite um, enormous. Like they dance together, they kiss each other on the cheek, they give each other massage in the bathhouse, and they hold
0: hands walking down the street. It's exactly. something as a as a kind of white Anglo Australian male. It's something I'm I think almost jealous of the the <laughs> gentle affection and intimacy that men in up some other cultures have. The idea of being able to walk. Uh, down the street with my arm around my best friend, or to hold hands, yeah. regardless of whether it's a friend or a lover, the 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 kind of the tenderness that men are allowed to express towards one another in yeah, some other countries fascinates me.
1: Yeah, you see, men, for example, close friends um, holding hands or leaning heads against each other's shoulders, you know, and that's something that you can you never ever see here unless it's just like made clear that these bodies are homosexual, you know. And for me, um, as an outsider. Um, when I see sort of like these paranoias that exist around certain bodies and sort of like, for example, breastfeeding in public or like um, images of naked infants or adolescents, like how the society responds to it. It's, um, and like it's the same as like homosexual bodies, that we make them invisible. And uh, this work is basically about like sort of giving visibility to something that is made invisible for a specific political purposes. Now, I'm just
0: interested, as a from a, a technical perspective, the challenge of shooting in a bathhouse in such a steamy environment, like not steamy as in sexual, but literally as in kind of steam rooms and so forth. What kind of technical challenges did that present?
1: That was probably uh, one of the most difficult um, challenges I've ever had to face as a photographer. Uh, in, like what I realised when I was in the room, because the work was um, absolutely sort of like it happened, like they took me in there when I thought it's not going to happen and we walked in there and the owners agreed for us to make the work so I had only ten rolls of film I shoot, analogue, medium format and so uh, I remember... I had to use every single um, knowledge that I gained in the past 15 years um, of, like, practising as a photographer. I realised I have to use them all to be able to make this work because the steam was covering the lens. I couldn't see through the lens to focus. The light was very low and... um, yeah, the, every ten frame. I uh, after every ten frames, I had to run outside and put a new film in in the camera and so on. So, you know, I, it required a lot of focus. But also, we had to perform the whole scenario in front of the camera. It was challenging, but it all contributed to the aesthetic of the work, which is what you see at Mars Gallery.
0: The exhibition is called Behold. It's on at Mars Gallery, which is located at 7 James Street in Windsor, uh, from today, the 31st of May, through until the 23rd of June. And if you jump online, marsgallery.com.au, you can see, uh, Hoda's images for Behold. You can also go to her website, uh, and, uh, see not only images from this series, but other works as well. Now, Huda, you um, started practising uh, photography in uh, in Iran, where you're from, yeah. I believe. What was it about photography as an art form that kind of drew you in and made you think, this is the the, the art form I want to dedicate myself to and, and, and celebrate and explore?
1: Um- I remember the first time I um, developed a film in in the darkroom and printed my image. Um, When it appeared on the paper, it was the most magical thing I've ever experienced, and from that moment I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And... um, in Iran, I was more drawn towards um, documentary image making and from the beginning I was interested in like exploring how the hierarchical sort of like systems function and why there are certain communities and People uh, pushed to the margins of the society. I was like documenting mostly um, um, marginalized groups and also sort of like different religious communities and and so on and I also worked as a photojournalist for a newspaper for for a short time before I moved to Australia. And after moving here, I found it quite difficult for a long time to make pictures uh, as I used to, like as a documentary photographer, which after a while, um, sort of like I shifted more towards uh, conceptual image making and constructing images. And now at this stage, I'm back into sort of combining the two and uh, what I like to call um, stage documentary, staging realities.
0: What was it that you found difficult about Continuing the more kind of uh, photo documentary practice once you moved here? Uh,
1: it's because, you know, like um, I, I remember I used to um, go out on the streets. Back then I was living in Sydney. I, I was going to Martin Place, Georgia Street, and uh, like looking for something to photograph. The surface of the society here is completely different from... Iran, like what you see on the surface and how you practice as a documentary photography is completely different and also my knowledge about the new country that I relocated to was very limited. I felt that I am I I don't have the authority to make any commentary about um, social issues here. Also, what I was seeing on the streets was nothing sort of in particular um, um, sort of like interesting to photograph, you know, like everything was very sort of like quiet and safe so for a while I stopped practicing because I thought my knowledge is very limited and um yeah. And then I think eight, nine years after migration, I started making documentary work again.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I think uh, the, the series of works uh, behold uh, on at Mars Gallery, as I said from today until the 23rd of June, will do for uh, for some people who view the work, they may have kind of some really limited perceptions or preconceptions about kind of homosexual life uh, in, in Middle Eastern countries, for example. So... To, to be told to be shown quite literally that yes kind of uh, same sex attracted men can live right. and love uh, in a Middle Eastern country well hopefully f- for some people the the scales will fall from their eyes yeah. um, I know as an artist you're involved with um, uh, another uh, a friend of mine Abdul Abdullah and yeah. uh, a group of other artists in the the collective Eleven which yeah. is striving amongst other things to kind of I, I guess uh, disrupt people's ideas about Muslim astrology in life. Tell us a little bit about the, the collective and what what the other members are up to at the moment.
1: Uh, the collective is very exciting and we just had our first major exhibition um, in Adelaide as part of the Adelaide Biennial. Um, it was in February and currently we haven't we're, uh, some of us are in an exhibition called Khalas Enough in Sydney at art and design um, UNSW art and design galleries. The works uh, that we are creating is basically sort of like um, not around a specific idea, but we all respond to representational politics and um, the current political environment uh, around Islamic identities it's just disrupting those um, narratives and um, sort of like um, show the otherwise based on like personal sort of experiences and um, yeah it's fair it's a very exciting collective that um, We are all sort of like very ambitious about the future projects and what we want to do with it.
0: I look forward to seeing more of the work from not only uh, the collective but also from yourself. As you say, the, the power of art to disrupt... Uh, people's ideas to disrupt narratives and so forth is a significant one. And I think that's one of the things that Behold does beautifully as well, as well as thank just you. being a kind of aesthetically kind of really striking and attractive exhibition as well. The, the photographic works by uh, uh, Hoda Afshar Behold on at Mars Gallery. Hoda, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. In 1993, the British playwright Jonathan Harvey's production Beautiful Thing premiered. Uh, it's been described as an urban fairy tale. Um, Harvey specifically wrote it because he was sick of uh, gay narratives in which the uh, the working class kid overdosed or became a uh, kind of a, a sex worker. So he wrote something that was going deliberately sweet and joyful and uplifting. It's A gorgeous play. I've read the script but never seen a production of it. You may be more familiar with the screen adaptation uh, released in 1996 by Channel 4 Films, which really seemed to resonate with audiences globally. Um, It was released uh, on DVD locally by a company called Love Films a few years ago. Well worth picking up if you haven't seen it. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I've never seen a stage production of Beautiful Thing, but as of next week, that situation will change thanks to North by South. Theatre Company, who are staging uh, Jonathan Harvey's Beautiful Thing at Chapel of Chapel. I'm joined in the studio now by North by South Theatre Company's artistic director, Cal Robinson-Taylor, and one of the cast members from Beautiful Thing, Melina Wiley. Hello, and welcome to you both.
2: Hi, thank you Hi. very much. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. Oh, my pleasure.
0: So, uh, Cal, why uh, why has your company decided to mount Beautiful Thing, and why did you want to direct it?
2: Um, I lived in London for like the last five years and I was lucky to see a production of Beautiful Thing and it really resonates to a contemporary audience because marriage equality just happened in the UK and everything's fine. And I came back to Australia and I was like, oh, we're debating this again. Um, and then after the play, I was like, what needs to resonate and what needs to spark a debate? And I thought this play is perfect because it really just sparked a debate of. Just love, really.
0: For people who don't know the play or the film, it's about two teenage boys, working class boys, on a housing estate in London. They're next door neighbours, and they fall in love. So it's, in some ways, it's a really sweet and simple story. Melina, tell us. Uh, I know you haven't seen the film, so when you picked up the script, what was your response to the play?
3: Um, I I think it's beautifully written. Um, it's very funny. And um, and uplifting, but there's also quite dramatic, poignant moments in there which which um, focus on on the issue. And I think the character that I'm playing, who is Sandra, the mother of one of the young boys, um, she's she's just a wonderful character. She's she's loud. She's opinionated. Uh, she's hilarious like I love some of the lines she gets to say but she's also got very dramatic moments as well and it's it's just a wonderful play to be involved in so and and the themes are all very important so uh yeah I thought yes come in (laughs)
0: <laughs> one of the things that I really like about the character of, of Sandra in the play and the film is that on one level she's quite unlikable because mm. she's so... she's rude, she's aggressive, she slaps her son, kind of... Uh, she's But she's also this incredibly strong working-class woman who has made huge sacrifices to, to care for her son and will fight tooth and nail for him as well.
3: Absolutely. She's the lioness, you know, and she... She just strives to give her and Jamie something good and um, he's basically the love of her life and and he always will be. Uh, she has a relationship with a, a, a younger man, Tony, in the play, um, but he will never be in the forefront like Jamie is to her and even though there are moments where she she's quite inappropriate and uh, violent with her son she is also incredibly caring and accepting and supportive of him as, and the relationship that he starts.
0: She gets to, Her storyline is fascinating because of that. The, the younger man she's dating is middle class, she's working class, and yes. so those kind of class tensions are articulated beautifully in the play. Australia likes to pretend or, or ignore class issues to a, a fair degree, Cal. How do you think the play will kind of sit with contemporary audiences?
2: Yeah, the whole class system in Australia is very different to the UK. Um, but we t- like you just said, we'd kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, but what this play really does, it sees some from middle class try to be something they're not. And at the end, you really get that resolve of, oh, there is a definite like ladder of this is accepted for this class and this is accepted for this class. Um, as for so Australians to see that, I think that would be powerful. Uh, also to see that issues like... Uh, Um, marriage equality, uh, like domestic violence even, which is in the play, um, isn't just based on like the lower upper class or middle class. It's something that goes throughout no matter what you are. Yeah, it's all class boundaries. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that resonate to everyone in the audience
0: Now the, the central characters in the play, uh, we've got Jamie who's uh, Sandra's son and his classmate and next door neighbour Steve uh, <laughs> what, As a director I would imagine that one of the challenges you faced was, do you cast 16, 17 year old boys in the roles to to give them a, a sense of, of realism or do you look for slightly older actors who are more skilled and, uh, and have more professional experience so they can embody the emotions of mm. The characters more clearly and truthfully. Talk to us about that particular conundrum and uh, what kind of how you solved it.
2: Yeah, casting young people is difficult because they don't have like the maturity of what they're dealing with. Um, if you cast a 16, 17 year old, you're casting the character and it's great. But when you ask questions about like first love and stuff like that, they have no idea and they get nervous. So we decided to cast like a bit older, so mid 20s. But so they look about 17, actually, anyway. (laughs) But then when we spark debates about stuff like that, their minds are switched on already and they can give answers from their own past. Because when you're a teenager, like, my past is five years, which is 12. And when I was 12, I was just playing soldiers in the backyard. It's not a good (laughs) answer when you're trying to be like, fall in love with this boy. Um, But for a 26-year-old, like, have you, like, felt love before? And they say, yes, we delve into that. And what were the struggles with it and stuff like that? So, I think we cast it well.
0: So, I think who, so, who are the other cast members? I, I know uh, James is one of them I, who, yep. I, who I saw in, at uh, 45 Downstairs not too long ago.
2: Yeah, in, in Awakening. In Awakening I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we have uh, James, oh, I can't pronounce his last name, Malka, I think his last name is, who's playing Stee. And we have Sean Amirhan, I think this is his last name I'm really bad with last names, but Sean, who's delightful as Jamie. And the two boys, like. They really show the innocence, but also the struggles of being a teenager.
0: And there's a couple of other characters in the show as well.
3: Uh, Ruby Wall, who's playing Leah, the wonderful Ruby Wall, uh, who does a wonderful job of that. Uh, Leah also, who is a very colourful, loud character. That's what, you know, the women in this this play are wonderful. (laughs) They're so opinionated and strong and, um, you know, colourful. And then myself... Melina Wiley. Yes.
0: And look, it's one of the things that I really like about Jonathan, Harvey, Jonathan Harvey's writing is... It would be very easy for a, a gay male playwright to focus on just the male characters, but he clearly has so much love for and admiration for the women in his life. But yeah, the the, the two female roles in the play are yes. kind of they're they're nuanced and kind of they're brash and they're tender and and broken and damaged but strong at the same time. They mm. yeah kind of yeah kind of they all the characters are really really nicely written.
3: They are indeed, and um, they they're all very well rounded characters. So. You, you beautiful dramatic arcs in in every single one of them, and just everything they have to say is um, is funny or quite quite dramatic. And yeah, yeah. what they're
2: saying is sh- truth. Yeah, and I, that's what I love about the script is like what they're saying is harsh to the ear, but. At the end of the day, you go, oh, they're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's correct.
0: Now, the yeah. play Beautiful Thing, as we said, it's, uh, it's a period piece in some way. So yeah. are, you, are you keeping it in period? Oh, and and yeah. are you
2: keeping it yes. kind of
0: in South London accents oh, and all? Oh,
2: yes. Yes, Indeed. so in early 90s Indeed. and very much within the southeast of London because um, I think you just have to to understand the play as a whole and the struggles because this is like post-Thatcher. So that really sets a time period of why these people are struggling and why the lower class really hate the middle to upper class and why Sandra is the way she is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's all dated back from the 80s. So if we set in modern times, I think we'd lose that essence of the fight yeah,
3: yeah, and and also I think the fact that it's it's set where it is, and you've got the um, theme of two two young boys coming coming out and and experiencing the fact that they're gay, um, and in an area where there's not much privacy. No, uh, the walls are paper thin. You know, they can't hide away from it. So it, it, it's yeah, keeping it in that setting works, yeah. I think.
0: How are you finding the accent?
3: It's challenging but it's fun and I, I find myself sometimes in normal speech, it like <laughs> a word pops out in in, in the accent. Yeah, it's great but, to see the uh, cast
2: talk at lunchtime and just still with the accent, like half Aussie, <laughs> half English. I'm like, this is great. Well done.
3: It's good fun. It's been amazing,
0: yeah. Kel, you, as you said, you'd spent, uh, what, five years in London, mm. so uh, do you have an ear for accents yourself and are you, as well as directing the show, then also being the vocal coach for them or have you just made them s- s- sit at home watching a particular style of film <laughs> yeah, or TV? It's enjoy. enjoy
2: uh No, um, <laughs> we spent about... A month before we started rehearsals, doing accent workshops of like, the intonation of the accent and why the accent is the way it is, I think that really helped the cast pre-rehearsals because trying to do that whilst you're trying to find your character is just going to be yeah. nerve-wracking. So we really delve into it. And I was fortunate enough to, like, to live in East London, so I knew exactly the type of people these people were and like the setting and where the accent was.
3: And from um, the actor's point of view, having done those workshops before you actually start the rehearsal process, you've already got that, a basic understanding of how the accent works. So you, you, you're coming to the script or well prepared. So, yes, very very well done, Cal. Oh, thank you, you very say. much.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing North by South Theatre Company's production of Beautiful Thing. It's uh, a limited season, so I suggest booking fast, because once word gets out, kind of every gay man aged of, of a certain age, kind of uh, who saw the film when it came out or has subsequently seen it, will be booking. So you're going to have to fight for a ticket, folks. Folks, So uh, North by South Theatre Company's Beautiful Thing is on at Chapel Off Chapel, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran. And if you want to learn a little bit more about North by South, Theatre Company, facebook.com forward slash North by South Theatre Co. Cal and Melina, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Thank, thank you for, very much. A pleasure. Chookers for the production.
1: Ah, ah, excellent. See
0: you on opening night. Bye. time for us to talk visual art. I'm joined by Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator, International Exhibition Projects at the National Gallery of Victoria. We're going to hear all about the latest edition of the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces exhibition, MoMA at NGV, 130 Years of Modern and Contemporary Art. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue easily.
4: <laughs> no, it doesn't, Richard. Hello. It's um, yeah a difficult exhibition to title because it, it covers so much, really. 130 Years a lot of changes have happened in the art of that time so
0: it's an enormous amount of time to cover given that mm. kind of trends in the art world can come and go with it particularly now in within a few years and i i'm really intrigued by the fact that it's 130 years of modern and contemporary art
4: that's right can,
0: when does modern art actually begin? Can yeah. you pin it down?
4: <laughs> well, no, I think that's one of the very hot, hotly debated questions in art history. But I think MoMA's own history, the history of the Museum of Modern Art itself, is is a good kind of um, test case, really, because it was founded in 1929. And at that time, the, there were three amazing philanthropic women in New York City who felt that New York didn't have uh, a contemporary art space it was you know it was well served by the Metropolitan Museum of Art for 19th century art but it didn't have anywhere to show the public all of the radical changes that had happened in the last sort of 20 years so that was the reason why they wanted to set up the Museum of Modern Art um, and so for them in the 20s they didn't use the term contemporary art they used modern art to talk about the art of the art of our time as they referred to it so they they set up the museum and they kind of felt that they needed to show a little bit of what had led to the emergence of modern art. So they went back to the 1880s, 1890s. That's really the period that you know, a lot of people will say, well, that's when modern art emerged because it was the time when, you know, cities had changed so dramatically, um, life for everybody had changed with new technology and that that sort of change, that relationship between technology and art and how artists respond to it is really, I guess, the guiding theme throughout the show. Um, but yeah, we start, I think the earliest work is 1886. And who's that by? That's Georges Seurat, so the wonderful pointerless painter, um, a landscape of his. And then the most recent work is a 2016 work um, Woven panel by a, which is a collaboration between a Swiss architect and a collective of women in the Western Sahara, <laughs> uh, which and their work is is a is a refugee camp map done in as a woven tapestry. So two incredibly different works, um, bookending the show. But that gives you a sense of how varied it is. Yeah,
0: it's an enormous scope to cover. But it, mm. it's fascinating to me that an exhibition like this is still yes it is presenting works by some of the the big names of kind of modernism and modern art so you've, yes you've got dali you've got picasso you've got jackson pollock and so forth but to have something that is literally just a couple of years old that is that it truly is contemporary mm. is yeah is really intriguing
4: yeah and that's right and i think um what we've also tried to do with the show is you know, while it is punctuated with those, you know, iconic works. um, MoMA has a really interesting history in the way it's collected alongside paintings and sculpture. It's also collected a lot of the so-called mechanical arts. Um, Its first four departments were in fact painting and sculpture and then film, photography and industrial objects. So they kind of had industrial design. They, they Three of their founding departments were actually mechanical art. So we've got architecture and design, film, photography, performance, drawings and prints, as well as paintings and sculpture in the show.
0: Now, one of the challenges for a contemporary survey uh, of modernism and contemporary art is the fact that as we've become more aware of the way that female artists have been excluded from the history books in the past and indeed excluded from collections. Mm. What kind of challenge does that present in curating and presenting uh, a survey exhibition like this, Mm. knowing that uh, some of the so-called great male artists of the day were abusive, violent, uh, Mm. and that their work has overshadowed the work of many excellent female artists at the same period.
4: Yeah, I mean, that is that is a huge challenge. I would say that that's sort of two different things in that question, really. One is just the actual presence of female artists and, their, and designers and their work in the collections that we are looking at. So whether that's NGV's own collection or in this case, MoMA's collection. Um, you know, I think there's an historical... Um, fact which is unavoidable that a hundred years ago the majority of artists that were being collected by museums were men and that is kind of a very complex reasoning behind that I mean um, I think in the last 50 years thankfully there's been a lot more kind of parity across that but I think it's still hard to do a 50-50 kind of split and we we can't really do that if we're telling you know with the collections that we're working with but um, one thing that we have I think had a lot of you know fun doing and it's been really interesting to look at is looking across the exhibition at interesting you know finding examples of amazing female artists whose work perhaps hasn't been seen as much in australia so we have a beautiful painting for example by lubov Popova who was one of the truly great painters of the Russian um, constructivist movement Um, and you know in that year of the Russian revolution she was painting these extraordinary paintings she was doing um, radical abstract embroideries to send out to the sort of the the the, the workers of Russia she was really quite an astounding person and in each section we've you know have do have a female artist but it does become much more of a kind of even spread towards the end of the exhibition um, reflecting our awareness I think of these issues today and the way collect museums collect the other question is, yeah, how artists maybe Picasso wasn't... Uh, he's, he's known as much for his adulterous behaviour and perhaps difficult attitudes to women as he is as being a great painter. Picasso is, I think, an artist who MoMA has championed from the very beginning as a great painter. And I think the biographical you know facts of an artist's life and the question of whether that interferes with their greatness as a painter or as an artist it's a that's a very vexed question yeah. <laughs> not one i can answer
0: <laughs> now the as you've uh, you've referred to the exhibition is divided up into a, a kind of rather than a, a chronological survey for example it's divided up thematically so you've got the machinery of the modern world mm. inner and outer worlds and so forth how did you kind of did you and the, the rest of the, the team at both uh, uh, the Museum of Modern Art and at the NGV kind of settle on this way of pre- kind mm. of sectioning and dividing and presenting the works?
4: Well, I worked on this show with um, two fantastic colleagues at MoMA, Samantha Friedman and Juliet Kinchin. One of one is a curator in painting, um, drawings, and prints, and another one of design. And I think from the beginning, we kind of had a, a list of works that were really those iconic works that we knew we wanted to have so they kind of covered across that spread of time but beyond that we were pretty had a pretty open you know it was pretty blank slate as to how we structured the show it is it is thematic, but it is still chronological. And I think the chronology provides us with a spine that I think everybody can understand. You know, it's a fairly easy to access. But what we haven't done is said, well, this leads to that and to leads to this, to that. It's more of a idea of overlapping times, sort of returns and just really kind of currents of interest and ideas that circulate throughout this period that might come and go. Um, but, for example, uh, you, we, we dip into, in the 1920s, a lot of the artists who were interested in the post-First post World War period in really creating a kind of utopian society in which artists were able to create, I guess, the... The aesthetic and the structure of the modern world, whether that's you know the houses that you lived in, designed by modern artists, or the the works you had on the wall, it kind of was all part of a a utopian vision for the future. And their their work was very abstract and sort of it had a kind of idea that the universal art was abstraction and that everyone could understand that. It didn't you didn't need to have great. Deal of education in religion or mythology to understand it. It was, you know, a kind of in an experience of the present moment. At the same time as that movement was, un, you know, unfurling, you also had, based in Paris, the Surrealists who were, couldn't be more different. You had someone like André Breton or Salvador Dali, kind of exploring the psyche and the inner worlds of the unconscious and creating these extraordinary paintings um, that, you know, couldn't be more different from the abstract sort of work of the Russians and the Germans. So it's a kind of interesting overlapping chronology. And I think that we, as we come through to the present, it becomes, I guess more difficult to the 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 sections become broader as we reflect on I guess the fact that artists are doing so many so many more different things the world we our understanding of art has become more global we we see that work is being made in different places for very different reasons so it's harder to kind of focus in quite so much for the contemporary but um yeah I think the the chronology mixed with the thematic is a kind of easier way to understand the collection
0: If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator, International Exhibition Project at the NGV, about the upcoming exhibition, uh, which kicks off on the 8th of June, MoMA at NGV, 130 Years of Modern and Contemporary Art. It's the the latest in the Melbourne Winter Masterpieces blockbuster exhibitions. How long does an exhibition like this take to plan and present? Three years, five years?
4: Um, This one um, has been about three years in the making. I'd say that's from from the kind of agreement to do an exhibition through to the um, to where we are now, I've worked on it for about two and a half years. So about eighteen months of that time was really grappling with what the list of works would be. At the very beginning, it was going to be 120 works, and it was going to go up to about 1960. And then it just became obvious that we wanted to tell this. I mean, if 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 MoMA is a museum of contemporary art, we had to bring it up to the contemporary. So that, thankfully, we got a. Expanded our checklist, and it, that's why it's become the largest instalment in this series so far.
0: I'm looking forward to seeing it enormously when it opens next week. I'm also intrigued by the fact that it's not just the exhibition itself, but of course, there's a range of additional programming, uh, including a partnership with the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. So mm-hmm. you can uh, go and look at kind of contemporary art, and then go and hear some contemporary sounds as well. And jazz is seems to be this for me. It, it's so firmly associated with kind of the 30s, 40s, the advent of modernism, the rise of uh, of kind of particular art movements and literary movements in America that go hand in hand. So it seems like a great pairing. So a bit of Friday night jazz and some... uh, some uh, modern and contemporary art as well. And then I imagine there's, I haven't gone into the full details yet, but I'm sure there's a range of talks and film programming and...
4: There's a whole range of programs and they. they I think um, they're being announced sort of week by week on our website as they get confirmed, but throughout the whole four months of the show there'll be quite a dynamic range of programs, yeah, and...
0: And there's also then an expanded outside the NGV uh, event as well, essentially celebrating connections between New York City and Melbourne to tie in with the exhibition 130 Years of Modern and Contemporary Art at the NGV. So uh, that includes... uh, Uh, Rock Quiz Live, uh, paying homage to all things in New York, Uh, a tribute to Leonard Bernstein by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and more. So uh, for details of all of that expanded programming, uh, the website you want is melnyc.com and that's covering everything from June through to August but if you want more information about MoMA at NGV, more than 200 works in the Museum of Modern Art um, then uh, jump online and go to the NGV website which is ngv.vic.gov.au 130 years of modern and contemporary art MoMA at NGV Sounds like it's uh, going to be a lot to sink our teeth into.
4: Yes, I think so. If you have, if you have, you know, a bit of time to spare, make sure you allow, you know, some good time to go and see it. It's a, uh, it's you know, it's a fantastic sort of journey through so many different types of work um, that I think it's it's a great show to bring us from that late 19th century through to the present, but not just through paintings, but through all forms of, you know, cultural production, including architecture and design. So it's really a great opportunity, I think.
0: I think it's going to get packed somehow. So (laughs) uh, book tickets get in. Uh, So the exhibition, as we said, is MoMA at NGV, 130 years of modern and contemporary art. Admission fees will apply. Jump online, ngv.vic.gov.au you for more details and yes more than 200 works from new york's museum of modern art including the likes of diane Arbus, uh, louise bourgeois mark rothko frida carlo and many more very much looking forward to it miranda wallace thank you so much for joining us
4: my pleasure thanks richard
0: this has been a podcast from 3 triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio